Chapter 7, Postlude, The After Trumpet Years, November of 1996 onward. During the summer before my retirement from playing, I had handed over to a suburban music store virtually all of my horns, mouthpieces, mutes, and music to be advertised and sold by the store. I had retained only the Bach B-flat that Bud had chosen for me back in 1970, my best Bach C, which I had selected at the factory and had played for nearly two decades of rehearsals and concerts, and two of my most often used screw, screw rim Bach mouthpieces. I had also kept a few mutes, my etude books and orchestral excerpt books, and the sheet music from my favorite solo pieces. Occasionally during the summer and fall of 1996, I had been contacted by various individuals who had recently become the happy new owners of my pieces of musical equipment, which had served me well during both my training years and my professional career. My intention in leaving the orchestra and entirely abandoning trumpet playing was to create sufficient time in my life so that I could complete all of the books for which I already had amassed the information and also gather more data for additional books. Thus, on the day following my final Chicago Symphony concert, I washed, oiled, and greased my remaining two horns and permanently stored them away with the other music-making items in a remote closet. From then on, whenever someone would bring up the subject of my playing, I would explain that my horns were safely secured in a place where they would cause no harm. What a delicious luxury it was to now have only one full-time occupation. As a researcher and historian, I immediately launched into a morning-till-night effort, seven days a week, to complete my first two-volume work, Birch Bark Canoes of the Fur Trade. In the first volume, I dealt with all aspects of the transporting of trade merchandise into the interior regions and furs and hides out to the eastern settlements in Quebec. Pertaining to the canoes themselves, I included chapters about their hull design and sizes, manufacture, decoration, repairs and storage, and described how they were propelled with paddles, pushing poles, a sail and towing lines, and how they were carried on land across portages. Other chapters dealt with the equipment, shelters, cooking containers, and foods of the voyagers who paddled these craft, the usual cargo items of the fur trade period, the containers of that cargo, and how they were loaded and unloaded offshore and carried across portages. Because of our family paddling adventures, I was able to better understand and incorporate all of the information about these various subjects from period documents. The second volume in the set described in minute detail every single component of each of the eight original surviving expedition canoes from the 19th century that I had located and documented in the U.S., Canada, and England. During my last week in the symphony, a good friend and colleague had stated that all of my years of musical training, followed by nearly a quarter century as a professional player, had equipped me beautifully for my new occupation. Now I could easily perceive the truth of her statement. High-level success as both a musician and a scholar entailed having a strong focus on the smallest of details and nuances, and also being able to gather both large amounts of information from various sources and organize and integrate that information. In addition, being willing to generate huge amounts of effort and perseverance and having the mindset that there were few limits on the amount of effort that one could put out on any given day were also traits of a musician that held true for a writer focused on historical research and personal experiences. As I delved into a full-time writing schedule, I was amazed and pleased 
at how many hours were available within each day for scholarly work after several decades of sandwiching it between all of my musical activities. After I had the text and illustrations for Birch Bark Canoes well underway, Doria and I prepared our Oak Park house for sale, sold it for the full assessed value within two days of putting it on the market, and quickly thinned out our belongings in anticipation of moving. In latter March, six days before closing the sale and moving to Michigan, we had the section members and their spouses over for a final festive celebration. On this occasion, Bud and Avis presented me with a tiny trumpet in its case, accompanied by a perceptive note by Bud that said, this is just so you will never be without a trumpet, and a heartfelt one from Avis that read, we're sorry to see you go. They had been very much involved in our lives for nearly three decades, and Dori and I were deeply appreciative of all of their inspiration, encouragement, and helpfulness over those many years. After loading a large rental truck and our van with all of our belongings, including 42 cartons of my research materials and a large array of containers holding the artifact collection, and sedating our cat Pierre for the drive, Toby the dog and Claude the ferret had no qualms about highway travel, we permanently moved to Michigan on March 30th. Upon our arrival up north, we learned that the area had received a record-breaking amount of snowfall that winter, totaling 17 feet while especially frigid temperatures had caused much of it to remain on the ground. The particularly cold spring weather that followed also postponed the thawing, so that by latter May, there were still deep drifts of snow in shaded areas of the woods. We relished being immersed in semi-rural life, with deer, wild turkeys, porcupines, raccoons, and plenty of other wildlife just across the road near the Devil River, and many miles of untouched Lake Huron shoreline just a couple of minutes away by car. During the course of our local travels, I discovered ancient artifacts at about a dozen prehistoric sites in the county. It was very satisfying to move back into the log home in, in which I had grown up from infancy to adulthood, and to sit again in the family room where I had listened so avidly to recordings of exuberant commercial trumpet players in my youth, and later to recordings of Bud and the Chicago Symphony after my introduction to legit music as a freshman in college. As a retired CSO player, I again listened avidly in the same family room. However, the recordings were now often ones that my colleagues and I had produced, including the tape of the solo and duet concert that Bud and I had played five years after I joined the band. To facilitate these enjoyable listening sessions, I burned onto CDs the extensive library of reel-to-reel -reel tapes of live CSO concerts that I had captured from radio broadcasts over the years from my student days onward. In addition to reliving myriad memories through recordings, replaying the soundtrack of my life, I also did my research and writing in the former bedrooms where I had practiced, received trumpet lessons from my father, studied and formulated my dreams during my youthful days. The fallow field across the road where I had played informal baseball games with my brother and a couple of friends as a boy, was now being plowed and planted annually. Thus I was able to discover there on a regular basis artifacts of ancient occupations dating back as far as six to 7,000 years. It was with considerable satisfaction that I settled into this second adulthood, since I had fully achieved my musical goals and was well on my way toward fulfilling my aspirations as an historian, paddler, and living history researcher. Now that I was no longer an active performer, 
It was fascinating to follow the gradual progression of my dreams that concerned musical themes. At first, I was occasionally visited by the classic nightmare that had sometimes haunted each of us in the symphony, the one in which we were unable to measure up qualitatively for various reasons. Over time, I could definitely note that daily trumpet playing had receded from my mental tracks. I began having dreams in which I was in the proper location for a performance. I was fully dressed in my concert clothes. I had both my horn and the appropriate music, and every note that I played came out of my bell as a magnificent pearl with no effort. Possibly an additional explanation for this dramatic alteration of my dreams was the long English coach horn dating from the mid-19th century that I had suspended on the wall above the head of our bed, along with its mouthpiece and the tubular leather case. Perhaps these items functioned much like a native dream catcher, filtering out any less than positive dreams. Aside from the fantastic improvements in my trumpet-playing dreams and their virtual disappearance over the course of several years, I also noticed that by not experiencing the constant emotional outlet of playing, I tended to sprout tears much more readily, especially when listening to soulful music. In July 1997, we paddled the mainline route on Lake Winnipeg, which represented the penultimate segment in our 3,000-mile family project of covering the entire fur trade canoe route across the U.S. and Canada. This was also my very first paddling jaunt since retiring as a player. During nearly all of the previous years while doing canoe voyages, living history reenactments and research trips, I had been obliged to keep in shape by practicing three times a day, However, during the month-long vacations, I'd been able to take a complete break from playing for about two weeks, and then had gradually gotten back in shape in time to return to work. On this particular voyage, it was a great relief to not have a trumpet in its gig bag as part of our gear, and not to have any expectation of practicing. In early September of 1997, we received word that Maestro Schulte had passed away, six weeks before the planned gala CSO concert which would have celebrated both his birthday and the occasion of his thousandth concert with the orchestra. As soon as I heard the sad news, I mentally heard the air on a G-string movement from Bach's third orchestral suite. The symphony traditionally played this quiet, contemplative piece to open the first concert after a colleague had passed away. The maestro's death inspired a considerable amount of reminiscing for Dory and me, as well as several listening sessions in his honor. It had always been very clear that Schulte was as demanding of himself as he was of the players in the orchestra. He never conducted a program with us without having first prepared and studied the scores extensively. Even when we were scheduled to play pieces that he had been conducting for many decades, he continued to rethink many aspects of the works and to reconsider how to faithfully respect the wishes of the composers. The secret to the exceptional relationship between the maestro and the Chicago Symphony was that both conductor and players had very high personal standards, an extreme degree of professionalism and mutual respect for each other. The results were clearly reflected in the music that we made together. Late in the fall of 1997, Dory and I traveled back to the Chicago region so that I could usher my two volumes of birch bark canoes of the fur trade through the printing process. I followed the procedure daily for six weeks, from November 15 through December 26, educating myself on all stages of book manufacturing. As a publisher, it was very important for me to understand all facets of the operation. Finally, after my many weeks of careful attention, 
the shipment of 6,000 volumes was delivered to Michigan. In June of 1998, we again traveled to Chicago, this time to join in the festivities celebrating the astounding fact that Bud had completed 50 years as the principal trumpet of the CSO. Having been a non-player for a year and a half, I was not able to actively participate in the gala concert of Gabriel's Trumpets, but I thoroughly enjoyed it as a listener in the audience. Although Bud was just six weeks short of 77 years old, he still played the Haydn Concerto on the program with his signature confidence and musicality. Afterward, the gathering with former and current brass players of the orchestra and members of Bud and Avis's family was great fun. It was an honor to help celebrate his legacy of a half-century of supreme music-making, and the occasion evoked a cascade of special memories for Dory and me. During the course of this visit, John Hagstrom gave us a guided tour of both the newly renovated Orchestra Hall and the new buildings of the Symphony Center. As a direct result of this little tour during the next year or so, I had recurring dreams of coming back to the hall to, to perform as an extra player on CSO concerts and not being able to find my way onto the stage due to the reconfigured layout of the downstairs rooms and the backstage areas, which were no longer familiar to me. During July, we paddled the north shore of Lake Superior, thus completing our 15 years of family adventures along the full length of the mainline fur trade canoe route, which stretched from Montreal to Fort Chippewyan in northern Alberta. This had been a demanding and very valuable project, one that had taught each of us a great many lessons about ourselves, the natural world, and the major challenges that our ancestors had faced. Shortly after completing this voyage, we received from the printing plant several thousand copies of the book Taquamenan Tales, which I had written during the previous year. In this volume, I described in detail what we had experienced and learned during my nearly two decades of preparation and the decade in which our family had carried out our living history research, as we had recreated the lifeways of a French trader of the 1600s and his native or Métis family. At this point, I was already well into the early stages of writing the two volumes entitled Fort Pontchartrain at Detroit, a guide to the daily lives of fur trade and military personnel, settlers and missionaries at French posts. I would labor 10 to 14 hours a day on this latter project for three years without a day off after having earlier spent two decades gathering the information. These two volumes, describing virtually all of the objects of daily life of the colonial era, and explaining how they were used by the French and native populations, were published in 2001 during the tricentennial of Fort Pontchartrain and the city of Detroit. During the same summer of 2001, Bud retired from the Chicago Symphony, after 53 years at the helm, just weeks short of his 80th birthday. Not only had he raised immensely the standard of excellence of brass playing all, all over the world by his personal example. He had also set a record for longevity as a lead trumpet on the job, which is likely never to be matched or surpassed at any time in the future. Frank Crisofoli passed away not long after Bud's 50th anniversary celebration in 1998, and Arnold Jacobs left this world six months after Bud's retirement in 2001. Chris and Jake had represented the bottom voices in the Chicago Symphony Brass Quintet ever since Bud had arrived in 1948. The esteemed instrumental voices that had helped to create the Chicago Symphony brass sound and style were being gradually stilled one player at a time. 
However, the solid legacy that the CSO brass section had established over the course of a half century of performances and recordings would live on, both in Chicago and across the globe, through new generations of players who had been inspired by their masterful example. Although I was no longer an active player, my work in the research and writing career was still guided by the standards and precepts that Bud and my symphony colleagues had instilled in me, and at regular intervals I continued to listen with special appreciation to the music that we had produced together for both my recreation and inspiration. In 2003, I completed and published the book Paddling Across the Peninsula, an important cross-Michigan canoe route during the French regime, which was followed the next year by the two-volume set entitled Rendezvous at the Straits, Fur Trade and Military Activities at Fort Debod and Fort Mackinac. 1669 through 1781. The text on the dedication page in each of the latter two volume reads, For Adolf Bud Herseth, my role model of impeccable standards with respect, admiration, and appreciation. At this point, eight years after having left the orchestra, I have written and published eight historical volumes, four of which have received the prestigious State History Award from the Historical Society of Michigan. Looking ahead, I still have at least a half dozen more titles waiting to be completed. These works include an account of our family's paddling adventures along the mainline fur trade route across the U.S. and Canada, a study of the dugout canoes of North America, a series of biographies of some 20 French ancestors who were involved in the fur trade between about 1618 and 1758, a study of the birch bark canoes of the Great Lakes native populations, and a book on the proto-historic or earliest period of the French fur trade. During my several decades of historical research and writing, my approach has been to quietly and independently do massive amounts of work of the very highest quality with my own financing. When each product is finally completed, I publish it myself to make the information available to others. I have always felt that when my work would be made public and would be studied by knowledgeable people, it would be appreciated for its real value. This has now been borne out through distinguished awards, book reviews in important publications, and widespread national and international sales. My ongoing research, writing, and publishing are truly independent. I am not burdened with any concerns about job security or the attendant politics and maneuverings. In addition, I have no pressures related to receiving grant monies, no fundraising obligations, no administrator's demands concerning either the content of my work or the schedule of completion. No need to explain to editors or publishers the importance of including certain data in the product, and no manager's opinions about costs, sales, and profits. My efforts are focused entirely on the historical questions for which I want to discover answers and explanations. I have no concerns for the amount of time, energy, and funds that are expended in the quest. Instead, I strive only for the authenticity and truthfulness of the end products. This is the primary reason why I've chosen to self-publish my works in order to retain complete control of the quality and quantity of the contents. My intention to publish each of my books myself also apparently has a genetic foundation. This supposition is based on the fact that I am descended from a long line of master printers and booksellers in Paris. Gutenberg pioneered the concept of movable type in Germany and began printing his Bible in about 1450. About 90 years later, my ancestor, Louis Sylvestre, 
began his 41-year career as a master printer in Paris, which spanned the years from 1543 to 1584. He was followed by his son Thomas, who was a printer and bookseller at the University of Paris from 1586 to 1605. His son Etienne likewise carried on the same tradition during his lifetime, working until about 1625. Finally, Charles Sylvestre, the fourth generation of my printer and bookseller ancestors in Paris, left the old world in 1636 and emigrated with his family to Quebec. There he became the clerk of the fur trading company for all of New France, running the warehouse. So my genetic code seems to be rather heavily imprinted with producing books. In most respects, my approach to historical work has been the very same as the approach that I utilized while training as a musician, which involved steady preparation and forward progress until I eventually reached a level which enabled me to play in the finest of the big league orchestras. This gradual sequence was an exercise in patience and steadiness, advancing tenaciously forward in small increments and appreciating the continual accumulation of abilities and knowledge along the way. The amount of time and effort that were required to reach the ultimate destination was of virtually no concern. The only goal was to keep the objective in sight and to disregard all obstacles and discomforts that appeared along the way. The long-term dream of becoming a high-level player had involved a considerable amount of determination, persistence, and optimism, as well as a great deal of dogged daily effort, which had gradually accumulated day by day and year by year until the desired end result was finally achieved. From my years of preparation in two different occupations, I am very aware of the importance of our developing disciplined habits, so that we don't have to decide each hour of every day if we're going to strive to make progress. Instead, we simply labor steadily forward each hour, seeking to achieve the highest quality possible, not with the goal of recognition of our efforts by others, but simply for the personal joy of participating in high-quality activities. I found it rather sad and pathetic to read that the baseball superstar Ted Williams had expressed his goal as a young man in this way. When I walk down the street, I want people to say, there goes the best hitter that ever lived. Unfortunately, he was intent upon not only achieving the highest quality in his particular profession, he was also looking forward to basking in the recognition and adulation of others. My experiences as both a musician and an historian have taught me to be content with working quietly and steadily to achieve excellence, without expecting much acknowledgement or credit from others. The quality of the results will suffice as the personal reward for the efforts expended. From my perspective as a successful long-term trumpet player and historian, I can readily understand the Dalai Lama's sentiment, great love and great achievements involve great risks. For virtually everything in life, there is a price to be paid. In most instances, it is not possible for us to know in advance the full price that will be exacted for any given goal or choice or forward stride or achievement or action. Likewise, the hope for rewards and results are never guaranteed, even if we pay the full price. This is one of the risks that are involved in seeking one's dreams. During my decades of first preparing for and then working as a musician and an historian, I have paid numerous prices, first while laboring to achieve my goals, and then while maintaining the quality of work in both the occupations. Some of these prices have involved investing great amounts of time, effort, and money, as well as having to ignore myriad other activities 
which I could have enjoyed with that effort, time, and money. Another major price has involved my eschewing the security of more conventional areas of work, one with a much higher likelihood of employment and steady income. Instead, I have taken the much riskier path, seeking two occupations that require mainly independent training and offer little likelihood of financial security. Having established my personal goals aimed toward each of these two areas of work, I am convinced that the prices that have been paid to reach and maintain an extreme level of quality in each of them have definitely been worth the results that have been achieved. In the process of rejecting the comfortable, well-trodden path at the professional level, with job security and a solid guaranteed income, I have avoided the university scene as both a musician and an historian. In the latter field, I am intent upon carrying out active and pioneering historical work. I am totally uninterested in spending a great deal of my time teaching standard courses of previously discovered information, preparing and grading exams, reading and critiquing papers, attending departmental meetings, and carrying out the other duties of a professor. I likewise have no interest in basking in the institutional attention of students, colleagues, and administrators. In the discussion of the prices that one must pay to strive for and achieve one's goals and dreams, it is very appropriate to also acknowledge the myriad prices that are paid at all stages by one's spouse or significant other and one's children, and the importance of the support of these family members. In order for me to fulfill my aspirations and work in both of my occupations, Dory and our sons Kevin and Ben generously adapted to many aspects of daily life that created an atmosphere conducive to my maximum success. For my work as a trumpet player, these included dealing with such features as my napping and sleeping schedules, a 25-minute nap on concert days at about 4 p.m., and a bedtime of 10 p.m. before work mornings. The content and timing of meals, the main meal of the day at noon and a light dinner at 4.30 on concert days, and letting old dad practice uninterrupted in the basement without boisterous activity or music upstairs, even when the boy's friends were visiting. In addition, our family activities had to be carried out according to unconventional schedules. When the majority of the population was off from work or was celebrating such holidays as the 4th of July, I was nearly always working since our performances took place during evenings and weekends, when the public was off and thus available to partake of our offerings. In addition, even during those days in which I was free from the orchestra's schedule of rehearsals and concerts, I was still obliged to practice three times a day, interspersed throughout whatever activities we were doing as a family. These reconfigurations of daily life did not represent the family members catering to the wishes of a prima donna, but instead simply a practical arranging of daily life so that I could do my job successfully. For my work as an historian and living history researcher, each of the family members enthusiastically joined me in taking myriad historical, genealogical, and archaeological study trips across the U.S. and Canada, in recreating the lifeways of the 17th century fur trade, and in doing long-distance paddling expeditions in the wilderness. In addition to my appreciation of all of this flexibility and support from my three family members, I must also acknowledge that the massive amounts of time, energy, and funds that were required for me to both master and then work professionally in two occupations could have instead been lavished on family and home. This latter issue likewise represented a substantial set of prices that my family members paid in order for me to attain various successes. However, we gladly chose to live in a modest Oak Park home, like my mentor, 
and we generally chose a very simple lifestyle. At holidays, we most valued the presents that we made by hand for each other and the gifts of services that we presented to each other. During the final week in which I was writing these informal memoirs, I received in a Chinese fortune cookie the following message. You will be fortunate in the opportunities presented to you. My life has generally consisted of one long series of fortunate opportunities. Rarely have I felt much entitlement in this world. I consider it to be entirely an accident of fate that I was born into the dominant race in a country blessed with immense natural resources and food production potential and generally lacking breeding conditions for many of the world's most devastating diseases, such as malaria. I feel that I bear deep obligations to appreciate, respect, and do my best to honor the myriad opportunities and abilities that I've been granted. By the way that I have tried to conduct my life and my work, I have sought to advance both the art of brass playing and the knowledge of life during previous eras of North American history. Along the way, my life has been greatly enriched by very many individuals, including Bud Herseth, and I'm grateful for the inspiration, encouragement, and opportunities that he and others have offered to me. It has been one fantastic trip.